It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Dominic Nichols, and this is Ukraine The Latest. Today, we bring you the latest news from the front lines and have a close look at the blasted Donbass town of Avdivka, the people, the geography, and the likely course of the battle there. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 22nd of November, one year and 271 days since the start of the full-scale invasion. Today, I'm joined by foreign correspondent Maiden Nanu and Daniel Hardacre, Telegraph journalist with extensive experience in Belarus and Ukraine. I'll start off with some updates from Ukraine. Last night, 14 drones were launched by Russia, um, according to Ukraine's air force. All shot down, they've reported, and they say there's no no reports of casualties or major damage. They say it was the um, yet more Iranian-made Shahid 131-136 Drones, but no reports of damage uh, or casualties there. The uh, Ukrainian Air Force also said that a Russian X-22 missile was fired in the Zaporizhia region, but fell in a field, missing its target. Now, I would just question whether or not it had a target or just been lobbed in the general direction of Ukraine. But I note it, it's, it's interesting, the X-22 Burya, which means storm, the storm missile, Soviet-era long-range airborne supersonic cruise missile, developed in the USSR in the 60s, upgraded in, in the 70s, is specifically designed to be launched from the Tupolev bombers. Now, you may remember only last Friday that uh, Britain's MOD said that they remarked at the time that it had been over 50 days since the last strike from Russia's long-range bombers, which I interpreted at the time as likely referring to the Tupolev fleet from Russia's long-range aviation grouping. But the news today, as the first winter snow falls today in Kyiv, uh, as we've been saying for some time, we need to keep an eye on weather and when the start of the anticipated Russian campaign against civilian infrastructure starts. So perhaps 
this missile if it's unlikely to have been able to have been launched by anything else. So if that marks the uh, the return of the Tupolev bombers, then maybe this is the start of the um, start of the uh, Russian campaign against critical national infrastructure, trying to knock out the energy uh, energy infrastructure. Although I think it will be different from last year because Ukraine have obviously been building up their air defences since then. Also in the last 24 hours, Russian attacks in Hezon Oblast have resulted in, in deaths and injuries. This is coming from Governor Alexander Prokudin down south. No, no details on numbers there, but across Hezon Oblast. Now, another thing I've, I've noticed today, an interesting but actually pretty grim story from Chris O, uh, independent military history author and researcher on Twitter. We've, we've referenced his stuff in the past. He's citing the independent Russian news outlet Verstika that has looked into how relatives of Russian soldiers killed in the war are finding that they are unable to obtain compensation due to a what they call a nobody, no case policy. So you can find this online in Verstika's online on their website. But as expected in, in any any major war, many, many of the dead Russians have not been retrieved and their bodies have been completely destroyed. You know, it's, it's, a, it's an extremely violent war making retrieval impossible. Now, Verska's journalist, a woman called Daria Kucherenko, she says that at least 176 civil cases have been taken out by relatives, commanders, interestingly, and prosecutors, and they're currently going through the Russian courts to have soldiers declared dead so that compensation can be awarded to their families. She says courts can declare that a person went missing under what they call circumstances that threatened death and therefore be counted as, as, as having died if they're not come back clearly. Now, Verska says such litigation is posing challenges for the Russian courts, as in many cases, the military prosecutor's office had been declaring soldiers as missing, not dead, which holds up the whole the whole process. There are some very grim case studies, but just to try and in the shallow end of it, uh, one woman told Verska that she'd had to trawl through Ukrainian websites looking at pictures of the dead in an attempt to locate her husband's body. She said, she told us that sitting constantly on these Ukrainian websites and among these pictures of intestines that they post, looking for my husband. Can you imagine it? I looked every day to see if they'd post something, at least a body. And if they don't find the body, how am I supposed to live? What am I now? I'm not a widow, but I'm not a wife either. So much more. You'll find that on um, on Versta's website, but also have a look at Chris O on Twitter. Uh, he's put a long thread with the sources there. It's, it, as I say, very interesting, but equally a grim story. And just one more for me. Switzerland, apparently, has approved the transfer of 25 Leopard 2 tanks to Germany under the condition that they are not sent to Ukraine. This comes out of the Swiss Federal Council today. I still can't get my head around the moral stance being taken here, but I, I hope that Germany sends at least 25 more Leopard 1s to Ukraine on the back of it. I mean, it's not a direct light for light, and Germany doesn't doesn't need another 25 Leopard 2s in order to send them anyway. But I just, as it's utter nonsense, I just hope there's more um, Leopard 1s on the way just because of it. I mean, look, any Swiss diplomats listening, please do get in touch. Give you as much airtime as you like to try and explain the moral stance here. But uh, yeah, because I really don't get it. Anyway, 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 Maidner. It's been a busy day for old Putin. He's had to endure another god-awful Zoom call to appear at the G20 summit. And he's been compared to Stalin. Tough day. What uh, What can you tell us? Yes. So there some comments yesterday from a UN Security Council briefing on Ukraine from Linda Thomas-Greenfield, who is the US ambassador to the UN. And she was marking the 90th anniversary of the Holodomor, 
which roughly translates as death by famine. And obviously, as you know, this saw nearly four million Ukrainians die. And yeah, Linda Thomas-Greenfield said that, like Stalin, Putin has used food as a weapon of war. And like Stalin, Putin has inflicted hun- hunger and death on Ukraine. So these are this is some quite stark comparisons here, but not dissimilar from what we've heard in the past. And these comments come a week after Global Rights Compliance, which is a human rights law firm, published a report accusing the Russian president of planning to starve Ukrainians and target food infrastructure in the run-up to the invasion in February 2022. So just in some further comments, Miss Thomas Greenfield said, we must not let Russia continue to weaponize food and inflict so much pain and suffering on Ukraine by attacking Ukraine's critical infrastructure as the cold and dark winter approaches. Absolutely. Now, I mentioned the G20 a moment ago. It's not actually, it's not in person, so it didn't give, well, Putin didn't have to run the gauntlet of of people potentially trying to grab him and hand him over to the ICC. And he's not actually spoken yet, as he made. I've been trying to keep up on it, but you've, you've been closer to it than I have. What's been happening? You're right. It's a virtual appearance, which we're probably expecting to see any minute now um, at the G20. And it's hosted by India. So it's in Delhi. But yeah, Putin will be appearing virtually. And as you say, there's an ICC warrant out for him. Um, And so really, the number of places he can travel to is very limited. But he's still trying to maintain that appearance of being, you know, a global leader who can travel and speak at all of these sorts of events. I think yesterday he was speaking at the BRICS summit hosted by South Africa. But again, that was virtual. And so, yeah, this is another virtual appearance. And I expect we may see more of him because there are very few countries where he could travel to. Yeah, and he's basically... He's trying to position himself as the well. He's trying to first. He's trying to say that he's back in the global community. Nothing to see here. Never mind the little war he's got going on in the corner. Everything's normal. Yeah. But he, is he trying to position himself as a sort of cheerleader slash P five, if you like, but grown up as he might see it, spokesperson for the global south? Or is that, am I overdoing it a bit? I'm not sure. I think I think it will be really interesting to see what he says today, and we can we can discuss that at a later date. But I think I know yesterday he was speaking a lot about. Gaza. So it'll be interesting to see what he says today, given the news. Yeah, I'm sure he'll try and speak about anything other than the uh, the war he's got going in Ukraine. Now, he's also got warm relations with Tehran. We know the Shahids are, um, there's a, a ready flow of Shahids up and down the Caspian Sea, up into Russia. But developments, White House are saying that, that actually, there's going to be more, more military hardware going from Iran to Russia. Yeah, so um, John Kirby, who, as you'll know, is the National Security Council spokesperson for the White House has very openly voiced his concern that Iran may provide Russia with ballistic missiles. And as you know, we think missiles are going to be key to Russia's bombardment of Ukraine's energy infrastructure this winter. And the Kremlin has declined to comment on this uh, specific claim about ballistic missiles, but they have said that they are developing relations with Iran. And they said, we are developing relations with Iran, including in the field of military technical cooperation, but we do not comment on this information. So, yeah, I think there's genuinely some concern from the US. And we know that in September, Sergei Shoigu, who is the Russian defence minister, Iran was host- hosted him for a meeting to show off a range of ballistic missile systems. 
So, yeah, I think the US are concerned that Tehran are going to go a step further um, in supplying the Russian army. And we already know that they supply them with drones, bombs and artillery shells. So there's something to watch there. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we, it's thought, you know, what, so what's Tehran getting in return other than money? But it's thought that Russia is is offering fighter jet technology uh, in return for a lot of the a lot of the stuff they're getting from getting from Iran. Let's turn to very great pleasure to welcome to the pod for the first time Daniel Hardacre, Telegraph journalist here, specialist on Ukraine and Belarus. In fact, if you if you want a nice ten minute explainer of of Belarus, the relationships with the West, with Russia, with Ukraine, quite where Belarus sits today and Lukashenko's position. Do have a look at, at Daniel's Defence in Depth video that he did about three weeks ago. You find it on YouTube. But Daniel, great welcome to the pod. Delighted to have you here. You've spent a lot of time in Ukraine and in particular around the east, around Avdivka. Now Avdivka's featured a lot recently, so it's worth doing a, a deep dive there, starting with well, starting whichever way you like, but I'd like to talk about the geography of the place, the um, the ethnic makeup, this idea that, um, well, surely if, if everyone speaks Russians, then they must love Russia. But anyway, talk, talk us through the cultural issues there and then take it out a little bit and explain quite where Avdivka is in the ground, if possible, and, and why the why Russia's fight for it is taking a, physically taking a different shape than from, uh, from Bakhmut. But uh, Daniel, welcome to the pod. Thanks for having me, Dominic. Yes, I think we can start with the ethnic and, and cultural makeup. And I think one thing to remember is, and it can often be misconstrued somewhat, I mean, people tend to think that the, the divide, the political divide in Ukraine is between Ukrainian nationalists and hardcore Russian separatists. And that's not quite the case. The, I mean, the, the, the chief divide in Ukraine, or at least pre-war, is between those who saw it as a fundamentally Ukrainian state um, with one official language and so on, and those who saw it as more of a pluralist state which emphasized its bilingual tradition and wanted more devolved power to the regions. Now, as with much of the Donbass, the residents of Avdivka were very much on the, on the pluralist side of things. They are predominantly Russian speakers. They quite often refer to the Ukrainian currency, the hryvna, as the ruble or kopechki, which is you know, the, the equivalent of the penny. And I think I had one experience in Avdivka, which I think demonstrated this very well, was when there was a cafe owner called Ludmila, who she was somewhat Russian sympathetic, although not wholly, you know, all guns blazing for Russia. And her son was in the Ukrainian army, um, who she was very proud of and was quite keen to show, you know, pictures of him in his uniform and his passing out parade and so on. But she also blamed the Ukrainians for the attacks which were coming from Donetsk. I mean, in 2015, the employees at the Avdivka coke plant wrote a letter to Poroshenko, um, who was the president of Ukraine at that time, asking the army to be removed, because they saw it as attracting attention from the separatists in Donetsk. And she blamed the Ukra- Ukrainian army for her injury. She'd been injured in, in shelling. And she, I asked her, well, theoretically, this could, this could be your son that's involved in this. And the response was just, bah, it's politics, it doesn't matter. And a lot of the, a lot of the Ukrainians in that, in that area, are, they're quite happy to be part of a Ukrainian state, but they're not, they're, they would rather the war ended. They're not too partisan either way. It's interesting, that cultural divide. So just talking to that point about areas that are predominantly Russian speaking are you what's your view on does it is there a direct read across 
or how closely can you then say, well, they are they're more pro-Russia or, or less, or is it, is it not so much of an issue? It's not that they're pro-Russian or pro-Ukrainian. It's that they have a split identity. Like many of the people that you meet in this region have a Ukrainian dad and a, a Russian mum. And that was their vision for the Ukrainian state, was that it was going to be a, a pluralist state. It wasn't going to be a, a, a fully ethnic Ukrainian state um, with only one official language. And so they were quite happy to be part of the Ukrainian state, but they wanted that, that identity protected as well. And that doesn't mean that they're, they fully back the Russians, but it does mean that when it comes to the war taking place in the areas that they live, they, they tend to just want it to end. They're not, they're not too partisan on, on, on either side. Now, you were there, I believe, in the, the months up to the full-scale invasion. I think you told me September 21 was the last time you were there. I mean, tensions were, hindsight's a wonderful thing, but we can now detect some signs, Putin's essay, et cetera, et cetera. Did you get any feel from the people on the ground? Could they sense something that was coming? Because there'd, there'd been engagements going on since 2014. There was quite regular uh, exchange of fire, but it seems almost by almost by duty rather than any great emphasis put on it from what you were telling me. But could you, looking back now, could you see any any suggestions that actually things were building to a head? Well, I think you put it very well there when you said it was by duty, because you're right, The, the Avdivka is, is one of the places that never really um, recovered from war. There's been activity going on there since 2014. And when I was there, you'd have almost a nightly hate. It was almost by arrangement at around 6pm. You'd have a few mortar rounds lobbed from either side and this would take place two or three times a week or a few exchanges of machine gun fire. But alongside that, there, were, there was positivity in the town. There were repairs being done to the infrastructure. There were plans for building more accommodation. And it was quite well populated. It had a pre, pre-invasion population of just over 30,000. And many of the people there had no real desire to leave. And, you know, there's lots of families around. It's even got a, it's got a quite nice beach next to the lake. It's, it was a place where people were living their lives and were planning for the future. Many of them had a, seemed to have a kind of backup plan as to what would happen if a full-scale invasion took place. But it was always spoken of as very much a kind of worst-case scenario situation. So... Can we now zoom out a little bit? Can you talk to us about the geography of the area and the, the, the physical laydown of the ground and the makeup of the town? You were describing um, an almost sort of fortress-like uh, infrastructure to the town, which, which might explain why the Russian advance there has, has taken to, uh, very much a pincer movement to the south and around from the north and to the northwest. So can you talk to us a little bit about the geography and how that's impacted the battle? Yeah, definitely. Avdivka is, as you said, it's all, it is a natural fortress, and it looks like it when you approach it. Um, the Donbass is a rural, is a kind of odd mix of rural and industrial, and you can see Avdivka, the, ta- the actual centre of the town, is made up of the Khrushchevka housing blocks, which are those Soviet-era mid-rise housing blocks that you see all across the former Soviet Union, and they are located on a small bit of high ground, surrounded by just open fields for miles and miles and miles. Now, when I was there, the outer layer of those apartment buildings had been turned into military fortifications. So they, they were abandoned, of their, the, the inhabitants have left, and there was a few Ukrainian gun positions, observation posts, that kind of thing. And now, if you look at the map, if you look at where the Russian advances are taking place, it's taking place in the only place that you could get to Avdivka. So on this, the southeastern approach, there is some... What's in military terms is, is called dead ground, um, which is ground that is lower than the horizon, so it can't, 
there's not a straight line of view from the defender's position to the attacker and some woodland and also a huge slag heap which over it's about 100 feet high it, it, it overlooks the coke plant and reports are suggesting at the minute that the, Ro- the Russians have already taken this slag heap but that approach which leads from the south up to the northeast is the approach that the Russians have taken and then further onwards goes up to highway 20 which then leads up to the Kramatorsk kind of direction where it's, it's complete it would be foolish to attack from either the south or the west as it is just it's 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 pure open flat ground between there and the town of uh, Avdivka yeah that um that that paints a picture so to the northwest i mean where does it go if if russia i mean russia wants to take Avdivka so that it can claim it's got the whole of Donetsk Oblast and all the rest of it but but where does it go from here if it if it does if it does take it it's, it's a very different shape to Bakhmut the the battle and also the uh, if not strategic but the operational sort of significance of holding the town what advantage would it confer on uh, on Russia if they were able to take it well the, the first one is is it symbolic I mean Avdivka has been Avdivka is well technically part of Donetsk it is a it is a commuter town it's it's you know what Croydon is to London Avdivka is to, is to Donetsk and um it's not that it's been a kind of reminder that they don't control the whole area for nearly 10 years now and in addition to that Ukrainian artillery can and does hit the center of Donetsk from Avdivka so those appear to be the the main military considerations as well as that highway 20 which I just mentioned which opens the road up to Kramatorsk and also if you connect back around onto Bakhmut as well but that's those are the main military considerations, but it's also massively symbolic. And, and yeah. Now, were you surprised? I know, sorry, I've, we're talking about geography and I'm going back to a little bit of sort of culture. Were you surprised with the um, the referendum last year? Uh, not, not surprised necessarily at the result that the whole of Donetsk wanted to be part of, of Russia. But, I mean, what do you think? You've described a very pragmatic population who just want peace and kind of want to want to get on with their lives and you know if there was a referendum in an occupied uh or sorry before the full-scale invasion what what do you think the kind of referendum might have eluded if there was such thing as a, if they were able to have a free election there it's, it's somewhat difficult to say because they're as i said their political priorities are a, are a little bit different i mean they're these are cossack people their, their primary concerns are their day-to-day lives and even among the the Russian separatists, there's a lot of disagreement about how that should take, how, what form that should take. I mean, there was a huge disagreement in the last 10 years about whether they should actually be part of Russia, whether they should go the way of Transnistria and become uh, these kind of not very well-recognized partial states. And even among the, the most hardline um, pro-Russian separatists, there was a lot of anger at the Kremlin for not backing them as much as they thought they would. And a lot of them preferred to go it their own. Uh, but underneath that as well, you also have people who are, you know, quite, were quite happy to be part of Ukraine. I mean, they, they had a preference for for the state to accommodate their own, you know, the, the, the fact that they are Russian speakers, but they weren't necessarily, that didn't necessarily mean that they wanted to be part of Russia either. It's a, it's a strange situation where they, because this is this turned into a full-scale war, but the actual political solution would have been some semi-autonomy for the region itself, or it seems to me to be. 
Now, back on the um, back on the actual battle, you've described the dead ground to the the, the sort of south east and south and southwest, which means. Well, I mean, in dead ground, you can you can approach a position, but you can't really see what's coming in. If you if you've got some surveillance in there, if you're a defender, you've got dig around in front of you, bung a bit of surveillance in there, electrical or uh, or physical, and you can cover it as long as you're covering it by fire. So very difficult to get across that, as you were describing that sort of five or six hundred meters of of open ground there. But from the north, is it and the northwest down on the road, the main road supplying it, is it? Do you think possible to, to, for a creeping? advance there we've seen russia again resorting to these what are they calling the meat waves just running at uh, ukrainian guns but um, that did work in bakhmut do you think that is a, an area of particular vulnerability or, or is there are there clear fields of fire up to the northwest as well so you, you mean behind the coke plant yeah the way the way that that russia would be able to if close the envelopment and then start moving into the town but not over the very very open ground that you've described before well, that that is that would be the major challenge for the Russians because it, otherwise the envelopment would have to be an extremely wide one, and it's not sure that they have the resources for that. I mean, you have there have been reports of Russia using these storm penal units, um, using them as, as kind of meat wave tactics. We could you could possibly throw them across those open grounds to the north and to the west, but otherwise, I think it appears that they would be quite satisfied with a slow moving envelopment because. That that area is just total op- open ground, which is overlooked by the coke plant and the and the high rises or the mid rises of Abdivka itself. Yeah, well, I don't think we're um, we're going to be moving away from this subject anytime soon. So um, we will come back to it. And, and thank you so much for your insight there to actually sort of bring it to life for us. It's, it's very difficult to get because it's right on the line of contact. The Ukrainian authorities are exceptionally. Um, well, hard on allowing journalistic access. So even our people in, in the country just, just can't get can't that, get that close. And the reports I see from other other media, um, I don't know if they've, well, I don't think they've been able to get people in. I think they're talking to um, Ukrainian service personnel when they've, when they've come out. So it's very difficult to get a, a clear view there. So, uh, so Daniel, thanks so much for your, for your input. We will hear from you again, I have no doubt. So let's uh, let's move on to uh, on to final thoughts now. A couple of things, really. I've noticed today that Jens Stoltenberg, NATO Secretary General, is is bringing to an end his sort of tour of the Western Balkans. We saw him yesterday in Serbia with President Vučić. There was a really awkward awkward photo. Jens Stoltenberg looks okay, normal, cheery self, but Vukic was picture paints a thousand words. He did not want to be there at all. And Jens Stoltenberg is, is a seasoned professional they would have had no doubt some very hard conversations about and he mentioned the relationship between Belgrade and Pristina the ongoing trouble that is widely thought to be spiked by by Russia encouraged by Russia just to give a open up another flank against NATO but Stoltenberg's also been around Bosnia and and elsewhere in the region just highlighting how events away from Ukraine not that far geographically but in a different sphere more political and with the tensions along the borders there, do have the potential to to ignite and then drag in all the neighbouring countries, many of whom are NATO members. So it's interesting to see Jens Stoltenberg putting time and effort into a fairly extensive tour around uh, around the Western Balkans and to see his his statement today when he specifically mentions the impact and the influence that Russia tries to, to exert on the region. So uh, let's see if that if that does anything to quell tensions, particularly along the, the sort of Kosovo-Serbia border that's been that was spiking of late. 
And other than that, I just want to note that today Ukraine's parliament has uh, supported a draft law that's going to make English the official language of international communication. Now, I'm trying to learn my my bit of Ukraine. You know I mangle it on a regular basis. Thank you for uh, for correcting me when I get it wrong, which is pretty much every time. But I'm trying to, trying to do my bit. But it's very, very helpful that the international communication language will be English. Daniel, and before you made notes, I had to dash off. Thanks very much for your input today. Thank you, everybody, for listening and for getting in touch. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. We're also doing the same for what is unfolding in the Middle East. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it's released, do refer to podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. As the disinformation war ramps up, we are relying on your support more than ever. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk and we do read every message. Ukraine The Latest was today produced by Giles Gear. Executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.